Welcome back to our neurology exam prep podcast. This is a, what we call a very special episode. I've got a really special guest, Dr. Doug Larson, who's professor of neurology and pediatrics at Washington University in St. Louis. And he is an expert on retrieval practice. And we're going to get into retrieval practice that may be familiar to some of you in some way. Uh, Some of you may have heard about spaced repetition uh, and similar formats for preparing for tests. But we thought it would be, I thought it would be really useful to understand, to take a deep dive into one approach to building knowledge, to learning and making connections uh, so that we can think a little bit more broadly about how we prepare for high stakes assessments like the exams. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Just to start, Doug, how do you think we're doing right now in terms of planning curricula, either medical school curricula or or even residency curricula for long-term retention, you know, for carrying that knowledge forward and also knowledge transfer, that is applying knowledge that we already know to, to new concepts and new ideas? Yeah, thanks. I think that there's kind of two elements to, to this question. One is obviously, you know, our, our planning of curricula to learn facts and knowledge-based content. And then we also, I think, have to distinguish learning from experience and uh, learning from practice. And those are two different domains and have different consequences as far as how we plan curricula and how we think about learning. But to focus more on the fact-based learning, I think so often in our curriculum planning, we tend to think of very short-term effects of retention, right? So if you think about when people design a course, it's usually designed towards, you know, how do you do on a final exam? Even when we design resident curricula, I'm not even sure that re- retention even comes into the equation because <laughs> usually we just have, you know, a series of, of noontime lectures or many morning morning lectures and, and we're, we require attendance and we're able to, you know, check that box for the ACGME and say we've got our curriculum, but there's very little attention to pay to is any of that even retained, uh, let alone transferred to, to actual practice. And so I think a lot of times it's not even in, in the picture, uh, which is unfortunate, right? Because we spend a lot of time on that. In fact, one time I calculated for our pediatric residents here at St. Louis Children's Hospital where, where I practice pediatric neurology, and they have morning report and they have a, a, a noon conference. And when you add all that up out of an 80-hour work week, they're spending eight hours, so 10% of an 80-hour work week in some sort of formal didactic curriculum. Uh, you know, for a normal person of 40 hours, that would be like an entire day of work. Uh, and yet there is huge evidence that most of that is simply forgotten. Uh, and so we're, we're spending a lot of our resources for very little return uh, on, on what we're actually learning. I think this is <clears throat> so critically important. Uh, I hope people at the ACGME aren't listening, but sometimes I worry that sometimes our residents are going to the noon conference mainly to get the lunch. And uh, there could be something to that. I mean, when you think about those numbers, they are really astonishing. Um, and I think the residents would tell you, you know, it's nice to get together and maybe there are some other purposes, but exactly what's happening uh, during a noon conference is is not always clear. So mm-hmm. You know, this is why I was excited to talk to you, I think, thinking about other ways for us to learn, uh, because whether or not we design the curriculum appropriately, learners are going to figure it out on their own, uh, either functional or dysfunctional approaches to learning. So I wanted to talk about uh, empowering our learners to understand some really effective ways to learn. 
And one that that I've been very interested in and that you've written a lot about is retrieval practice. So can you can you tell us what retrieval practice is? Sure. So retrieval practice is the the process of you know, retrieving or recalling information from memory to to then apply it in some setting, you know, a test or answering a question or using it in some way. And the idea of practice is that you're doing that more than once generally, although even one time of retrieving something can have an effect and and can uh, be beneficial. And that that act of retrieval actually uh, makes the memory more enduring and therefore more useful for future use. And another term that has been used for retrieval practice is test-enhanced learning. Can you tell us why we use the term retrieval practice rather than test-enhanced learning? Uh, sure. seems to be so the in many ways, there are synonyms, um, and there's been an evolution in kind of the language. You know, this was kind of first described as test-enhanced learning or the testing effect because it came from tests, right? And so I could give you a test or a quiz, and I can show that you perform better and you remember things. The problem is that the word test has a lot of connotations to it. Uh, you know, people are, you know, thinking about standardized tests or they think about, you know, test anxiety. Uh, and, and so they get hung up on the actual word or, or product of a test. Whereas what we're really describing and what gets to a little bit more of a, a mechanistic term is that retrieval practice. So it doesn't have kind of the baggage uh, of testing. Um, but when you find literature, that refers to the test uh, testing effect or test enhanced learning. It's re- referring to the same process. Retrieval practice just allows us to think more broadly about all forms of retrieval and the different things that elicit retrieval that aren't necessarily even just tests. Uh, even our very experiences, such as even seeing a patient, can be a form of retrieval practice. And so it's really meant to just help people think more broadly. That's why we, we've to use the term retrieval practice rather than test-enhanced learning. Tell us a little bit, just a broad overview of the evidence to suggest that this could be effective for enhancing knowledge. Yeah, so the evidence, this is probably one of the most robust areas of of cognitive psychology and education. It really began uh, by some limited studies. Uh, So some of my colleagues, when they went back, you know, one of my uh, collaborators, Andrew Butler, who is now actually the department chairman of, of education here at WashU, you know, when he was writing his doctoral thesis, he, he was actually looking at, well, well, where was this first published? Actually, the very first studies came out of the early 20th century. So 1920 or so around that neighborhood were some of the first studies that demonstrated this effect. And then there were some occasional studies here and there through the 20th century, but then it really took off in uh, 2006 or so, or the early 2000s when uh, Dr. Uh, Henry Rodiger, who's here at Washington University, really began digging into this. And he and his graduate student at the time, Jeff Karpicki, published some of the, the big studies that really demonstrated this. And then that kind of just blew up into a whole program of research that was conducted both in laboratory settings, but then also in applied education settings. So, you know, they actually had you know major funding to look at this in middle schools. Uh, it's been looked at in you know, different populations, elderly populations, young people, uh, and then myself uh, became kind of the medical education application arm of that. And then there's been many studies that have been done in, in medical education. This is highly replicated across many, many different settings. There was a U.S. Uh, Department of Education task force that looked at evidence-based educational interventions and really retrieval practice and its forms 
were one of the uh, most robust and well-studied. You know, anybody just has to look at their own personal experience to know that this works. So I realize that we don't often uh, memorize phone numbers anymore, but if you think about if you ever had to learn a phone number, the only way you knew it is if you kept repeating it back to yourself, right? And so that what you're doing right there is retrieval practice. And again, you, you'll see this time and again when you realize, oh, I need to, I need to remember something and you in, intrinsically want to kind of quiz yourself or keep saying it again and again so you can hold it in your mind uh, so that you have it. And you know that if you don't do that, it'll quickly be gone. And so on a micro scale, I think we all experience this in our own lives. And this is just now taking that same principle and expanding it and demonstrating how it works on on more complex and, and broader materials. I think that's a great segue to actually getting into a little bit of the cognitive science behind how retrieval works, how retrieval practice works. So can you talk us through the steps that, that go into obtaining a piece of information and then retrieving it and how retrieval practice fits into all of that? Sure. So also to be very clear, this work is still in many ways um, being you know, further defined and, and, and in many ways we're still working somewhat off of theories and extrapolating from various sources of research that's being done. What I'm saying may very well change over time and, and may even be modified by further research. But in general, if you think about what, what happens when we learn something, if you think about a piece of information, it doesn't exist on its own. It's not a, a, a card within a card index. You know, if you think back to the old, you know, card index in a, in a library, it's not just in a drawer on its own. It's a connection. It's we, we remember things by networks, you know, and as neurologists, we should think a lot about networks. And so you're embedding something within a network. And that network over time is either strengthened or diminished, and it's also pruned, right? We don't remember everything that we've been exposed to. Uh, If we did, we'd be stuck. Uh, And so pruning and forgetting is actually a really important process. But we want to be able to retain some things and forget others. And so we go through a process of, of, you know, that process of eliminating extraneous memories and coming down to what's called consolidation, right? So we we prune that network down to, to hopefully the most important things, not always, but there are certain things that are retained. And then the more that that network is activated, that you have a process of consolidation and reconsolidation. So again, this is a dynamic biological system. It's not an inert chip that is sitting in a computer, you know, but these are cells and, and electrons, you know, electrical you know, impulses, you know, traveling through these networks and they've got to be maintained and they're constantly being modified as well. I think one of the fascinating points is that we actually never think the same thought twice or have the same memory twice, right? Because one thing that's emerged out of memory research is that memory is a generative process. I think that's so crucial to understand. Memory is a generative process. It actually is why we can create false memories, right? Uh, and that whole, in fact, Rodiger's early work had come out of that whole false memory research and about how people create false memories. And again, one of the ways that we create false memories is through this generating information and generating memories. And so it's a, it's a very interesting connection to retrieval practice, which is also, again, that process of generating memories so that they stick. Uh, it's just hopefully things that are true and that are real rather than false memories that, uh, that we're creating. And so in that process of uh, retrieving things, we then reconsolidate, we strengthen that network so that it becomes more enduring. What I'm hearing from you, I'm thinking of our 
our listener who might be preparing for an exam or, or studying. And we'll talk about some ways that may be more or less effective in, in terms of engaging retrieval. But they're presented with a prompt of some sort, uh, whether it's a question or a topic. They have to generate information, retrieve information, their knowledge, and there's connected information on that. And during that process, what you're saying is that the memory is changed. Uh, Their knowledge and memory of that process is changed. And as you said, hopefully further consolidated or reconsolidated when it's re-encoded. Is is that more or less correct? Right. Yep. What are are schema and how do they fit into this? So schema, again, are in some ways those connections, right? It's, It's, you know, because like I said, facts don't exist in isolation, but it is the connections, the framework that, that this information exists within. And if we begin to think in terms of schema and how things relate to each other, it begins to help us think about how we should be planning a retrieval practice and also how we should plan information. So we should be thinking about how do these things connect? How do we strengthen those connections? And we can even think in terms of retrieval practice of of retrieving entire schema and and not just the the isolated facts that exist within that, right? But actually thinking in terms of the framework itself. And and there's some evidence that's been done in different studies uh, about that, thinking of those terms and actually designing retrieval around that actually produces uh, more robust effects. Yeah, it, it makes me reflect on, you know, the approach that sometimes is encouraged either consciously or unconsciously of a very simple fact-based flashcard or multiple choice question where uh, there is a question that relates to a simple fact and that can be retrieved, but it's kind of floating out there in space and not connected to anything else. And I always wonder just how much that helps with long-term retention or or planning. I, I don't know if there's any evidence for that. I mean, I think that there's, there is evidence and I think our own experiences say that there's gonna be some degree uh, of retention of that, right? So just going back to my, uh, you know, phone phone number example, right? Those numbers are nice. You're just seeing them over and over again. And yeah, you're going to remember it for you know the couple minutes that you need to to go and, and dial that phone number. But you're probably not going to remember it for very long. And, and again, it's just because it's a it's a pretty meager network, right? Uh, and so the question is really how robust is the network? How how robust are the connections that we can create? And, and the more connections that there are going to be, you know, the more likely then that's going to, to endure. And so, so again, I think we've got to think in those terms. Then moving on to sort of implementation of these ideas, implementation of that retrieval, consolidation and reconsolidation process of thinking about schema connections and reforming them. I wanted to talk a little bit about implementing retrieval practice. And I think we'll start with talking about how it may be implemented in curricula. So I'm, I'm very interested in how we might be able to implement retrieval practice in a residency program, even some principles, even though it's hard to control. You have some experience in medical school and among residents. And then also we'll, after that, talk about how learners might be able to use some of these principles in their own personal studying, in their, self, uh, in their self-directed learning. What about test formats, you know, the prompts? Uh, I guess all retrieval starts with a prompt, whether it's a test question or a flashcard or something like that. Are are there better or worse test formats? Absolutely. So there is evidence that uh, test format does have an important impact on how 
retrieval practice takes place. There's important work that was initially done by Andrew Butler that I referred to earlier, where he looked at comparing multiple choice questions with kind of short answer questions versus having no further exposure or just studying things alone. And, and what they showed is that over time that people retained the short answer questions better than they retained the multiple choice. And in fact, in that study, multiple choice was equivalent to uh, just studying it. And then those were better than no further exposure. You know, in other studies, you know, multiple choice can be end up being almost similar to no further exposure. So there's a clear principle that the more retrieval that is required, so the broader, the more the schema that has to be retrieved, the more enduring that's going to be. So if you go back to multiple choice questions, it's largely just a recognition event, right? Uh, you kind of just have to recognize the, the answer. And especially what bothers me is on repeated multiple choice questions. A lot of times you're just looking for, can I recognize the wording, the prompt? Yeah, I saw that prompt before that was right. You know, and you're very, very anchored on a lot of the queuing information there rather than, again, retrieving the entire schema. And in fact, other work that was done here at WashU by Franklin Zerome looked at free response questions. So in other words, where you don't even get much of a prompt at all, you're just told, write what you remember. And, and those actually generated, you know, students actually would retrieve the schema, would retrieve the framework and putting things back together rather than just retrieving the, the isolated fact. And so when we think about how to design our curricula, how to design the implementation, I think that we're gonna get at our, our deepest learning and our most robust learning when we actually require learners to generate more of that framework, more of that schema. So it's not just, can you recall this one word or this one fact? But can you recall, again, the, the full framework? And again, we have to adjust it based on what the target is. So maybe you do just want to learn, you know, I just kind of remember, you know, these very isolated facts. And so you kind of just quiz yourself over and over again. But again, if you can put it together in a broader format, uh, it's just going to be much more robust uh, and much more effective. So, so those those of us who are involved in writing or editing multiple choice questions know that they're not created equally. There can be multiple choice questions which often have very rich prompts, uh, which uh, provoke potential retrieval of of more complex schema. One approach I've seen, uh, and I think this has been written about, is that multiple choice items on their own can be used as a prompt to generate that deeper learning by covering the question. Uh, so just having a, a clinical stem and no question, and even putting your hand over or putting a piece of paper over the potential answers, the answer options, so that you would guide the learner to look at the stem, the, the clinical scenario, if it's a well-designed question, and ask them to, to freely retrieve what they understand about this. Do they recognize this process, this disease process? What do they know about it? What do they know? Why? certain details have been included or not. What do you think about that? Yeah, so you're right. So the challenge that we always face in education is about convenience of, of scoring, especially, uh, and, and multiple choice questions are, are great for that, right? Because there's a right answer, it's A, B, C, or D, and you can score it really easily. But it should be recognized that really the only educational reason for multiple choice questions is ease of scoring. And, and so the 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 method you just you described where, you know, you basically 
try to retrieve first and then look at the, the answers is a great way to get away from the, the effects of, of just anchoring on the multiple choice questions. So I think that's great. Uh, but I do think that as educators, we have to be careful about why we're using multiple choice questions. And when we're talking about just formative quizzes, there really isn't much of a reason to use multiple choice uh, because we don't need, you know, precise scoring. We don't need, people can look at the answers themselves, you know, and, and then we're going to more long, long form answers that people can really get into rather than trying to come up with lures. Again, much of the, the evidence on multiple choice questions and so kind of multiple step, multiple choice questions where you've got to think about the whole process before you get to the answer while it did show some similar effects to short answers, the problem in those studies was that it only worked for verbatim items. It actually didn't extend very well to novel items. Uh, and, and so I think that the point still stands that you know, multiple choice questions, are they're better than nothing, probably. But when we're really talking about trying to learn something, there isn't too much of a reason from an education standpoint to, to get into multiple choice questions. And, and if you think about it from an educator standpoint, it's actually easier, right? We don't have to spend all of our time coming up with alternative lures and things like that and designing all of that appropriately. Uh, we can actually just ask people to tell us what we want them to know and to tell us that, that framework. And, and it, it helps, I think, actually avoid getting distracted by formats uh, which is really a big issue in, in multiple choice testing. It's, it's interesting because I, I think this is very useful for many of our listeners to hear. Many listeners, when they're preparing for high stakes examinations, would be using multiple choice question sets as a prompt. I guess the reason I say that covering uh, the options and covering the STEM is because if they're going to use that as a prompt, they might as well use a deeper level of retrieval. But, uh -huh. but hearing what you're saying, the, the idea of going through thousands of questions, uh, just hammering through these questions, looking at them as if you were taking a multiple choice test is possibly slightly better than nothing. Am I hearing that correctly? Oh, absolutely, right. And, and again, I, I think your, your point is really well taken. You know, the commercial products that are out there are all done in multiple choice format. And so again, to, to really get the fullest effect, absolutely. Try covering up the, the answers really try to retrieve it and then use the, 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 the answers then as, as something to check. And again, when you go back to it, why do they do that? Because they wanna be able to give you a score at the end so that you can know how you, know, how you did. But when we go back to kind of homegrown things, right? When we're talking about uh, developing our own curricula, when we're talking about you know, something that we ourselves want to learn, so I want to remember all the different leukodystrophies or metabolic disorders, whatever that might be, right? Much better to say, make a chart for yourself. They then have to populate and keep populating and, and, and trying to do that than coming up with a series of multiple choice questions for yourself. Yeah, I think this is another uh, great uh, practical point. And, and just as a, a side anecdote, I remember a couple of years ago, I was in the elevator uh, in one of our taller buildings in the, in the hospital. And, and a, I think it was a medical student came in and was using a commercially available multiple choice question product on their phone. And, and I think they went through five or six questions on, on the elevator ride. 
And I thought, what what learning could possibly have happened during that time? I mean, it's not much happens. It, it just seemed like very fast uh, and and possibly self testing, but maybe not the best way to go. And and fewer prompts prompts, but done well with the schema formation. It sounds like is is much more effective. You know, and there are ways to modify some of those products. So, for instance, Anki is a really popular one. Anki does not have to be multiple choice. If you know, you can ask. You know, you can design it any way that you want, where you can say, remember this pathway or whatever, and then you have to create the whole thing and then you can check yourself and see what the answer was. So again, uh, it's not, not so much that, that the products are bad or wrong. And, and again, they, they do provide some benefit, but you can design some of these things uh, to uh, to have pretty broad retrieval uh, if you if you just, if you go into it that way. So when we design a product for testing uh, for ourselves, or if we're using a commercial available product, it seems like repetition is important, right? Uh, A single retrieval is valuable, but more than one can help with that consolidation and reconsolidation process. So do we know how many repetitions, how many times we should go through something uh, before we know we have it? Yeah, that's a great question. So there's some work that that, uh, was done um, by Rousen and, and, and their group. And, and what they showed was that uh, there is a dose effect, uh, but it also levels off at some point. In their studies, they came up with about three to five repetitions. Uh, I think that the key really is, is you know, how complex uh, the information is. If it's really complex, really robust, you may need more repetitions to get to it. Uh, if it is more simple, you may need fewer repetitions. Uh, but there is diminishing returns. A rule of thumb is basically about three to four uh, repetitions are, are generally necessary. Now, one of the keys there is whenever we talk about repetition, by definition, we're also talking about spacing, right? Because it's about you know how close or how far those repetitions are. And I think spacing is one of the uh, most neglected principles within all of this uh, because it, it has very powerful effects. And, and, and the spacing effects have been demonstrated not only retrieval, but even just reading. And, and I think spacing, to really understand spacing, actually goes back to the principle of consolidation. Because what you are doing by allowing time to pass is that you're then retrieving a more pruned, more consolidated network and then boosting that, right? And, and if you're retrieving too soon, then that network's pretty fresh. And, and pretty raw and there, you know, and there's stuff that may or may not stick uh, within that and it's gonna be a much more short process. But basically the, the amount of spacing is proportional to the long-term uh, retention. So if we want to remember something for months and years, it needs to be spaced on the order of weeks and months. And I think that's so important to understand, weeks and months of spacing to remember things you know, for months and years. If we need to remember something for just minutes or days, then that spacing can be much shorter uh, and is adequate for that. And that's why cramming works, okay? (laughs) Because what we're doing is we're just doing really high intensity, small spacing review or retrieval, and then we can remember it for the day, you know? (laughs) And then we forget it because again, there's very limited spacing. But when spacing is, you know, is, is spread out, when we give time there, uh, then we're going to have much more enduring memory. The, the total memory may actually be less because, again, there's been a lot of pruning, but it's much more enduring over time. 
What, what's interesting when I'm hearing you say that is I wonder why then we have a neuroscience block in, in medical school that might be two or three months at the most, right? All of this stuff happens and then we assume that that's learned and, and there you go. Uh, and it, it's not surprising at all to me uh, because I spend a lot of time with clinical clerks on the neurology rotations that they don't remember anything from uh, my session on epilepsy from three or four months ago. I, I don't blame them. They, they, there's no reason they should, right? Right. right. In fact, it's, it's pretty fallacious that we do. <laughs> and, and it's, you know, and it's unfortunate. It's, we, a lot of medical students suffer because of that. Like you know, the classic is, weren't you at my lecture on such and such? And, you know, why, why would we assume that they remember that? You know, we gave them no sort of structure. We created nothing in the system that would allow them to remember that. Uh, so we're, the, we're to blame, not them. The, the um, residency is, has the potential to, be, to do better with this. And I often think of residency along the lines of the model of a spiral curriculum, right, where you continue to return to similar topics over and over with hopefully advancing degrees of personal experience uh, and understanding. And, and uh, along those lines, from a residency point of view, repeating sessions, as long as they incorporate some element of retrieval, seems to be a sensible approach. I'm, yeah. I'm often surprised when somebody says, oh, I've already gone to that lecture, or I've already learned that sort of thing, because what you're telling me is that there's value and advantage to repeating these things. Yeah, so there's there's two things there. Um, I guess I'll, I'll take the first that that idea of I've already been there, right? Um, there is what we call illusions of familiarity. So again, oftentimes, just because people have seen something, they actually think that they know it. Um, and this happens a lot when you read it. Uh, you know, so you'll read something, and you'll say, in fact, you even may reread it, right? And you say, I know this because I I am so familiar with it. But then when you have to go and retrieve it, like, psh, you don't remember anything. Uh, and I think the same thing happens a lot for lectures. We have a familiarity with the topic, even that same lecture, that same session. And, then, and so we have a sense that we know it. But, but we, when the rubber hits the road, it's actually not true. Uh, and, and that just happens a lot. The idea of repeating sessions in residency, I think, is important. The one problem I often see is that residencies will generally have an annual curriculum, right? So it's like, we'll do the same thing for this year, and it's the same thing next year, and we just expect because you do three or four years of residency, you're going to get multiple repetitions. So yes, that's spaced out. But one of the other challenges with spacing is that if spacing is too far, you actually don't remember anything. And so the trick of spacing is to be far enough that there's effortful retrieval, but that the network is still there to retrieve. <laughs> and, and so that's actually why many products will use an expanding interval of spacing. So you're going to do it at shorter intervals up front, you know, when the forgetting curve is steep. But then as that's become more consolidated, then you're going to start spacing things out. And I think that there's good reason to think that, that on a macro scale that 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 can work um, well. On micro scales, when research was done on the order of like minutes for these interval, expanding intervals and set intervals, there really wasn't a difference. Uh, but when you really start talking about on the order of days, weeks, and months, then it starts to make a lot of sense that you would maybe have tight repetition early on when you're forgetting a lot and that you're then expanding that interval of re retrieval. That gets a little bit tough from planning from a curricular standpoint, um, but I think it, we should at least be mindful 
that once a year may not be all that effective if we really want to uh, to help people learn and retain that information. How do we take into account learning in groups? Because we're talking about a process that feels very individual, you know, retrieving information from one's own memory and, and then consolidating and reconsolidating. But much of our learning happens in groups. So how, how do we how do we take into account the learning in groups? Some of our listeners may study in groups. Uh, all of our learners in medical school and residency work in groups, uh, at least some of the time. So how do we how do we incorporate that into a curriculum and, and bind retrieval practice into that? That's a good question. I think that when we really think about group learning and what the effects of group learning are, then we start to get into, I think, a, a different area of learning as we start thinking about that learning from experience and the social construction of learning and, and whatnot. And that, and one, I think that's a really exciting area of learning. In fact, I think that's even more important and more germane to the practice of medicine than even retaining a lot of facts. If we're thinking just in terms of how do I remember the facts better, groups can be used for quizzing each other, remembering things and whatnot. That's how I see the group dynamic there. I think that if we really want to get into how practices are formed and how people learn at work, then we actually get pretty far away from this retrieval practice. And, and we start then talking in much more complex forms of learning, where learning is actually created by the interactions of individuals and not only individuals, but settings and materials. And, and then we get into the context-dependent nature of learning and the fact that what is learned and practiced actually changes with changes of any of those variables. Um, and so it's a much more sophisticated view of learning that I think takes us in a different direction. But I think that's how I'd be mindful of that is that, yes, you know, for retrieval practice, groups can be nice as far as clarifying things, quizzing each other and whatnot. But when we're talking about the retention of individual facts, it is a fairly individual process. But if we want to talk about learning of practice and work-based learning, you know, then it's all about the group and it's all about the, the social and material setting that that takes place in. One thing I was wondering is, is whether a group, either a facilitator or other learners can help with showing the way that schema might be formed, you know, uh, helping de demonstrate some of these connections that are made. Sure. Or what I would say is just even in the conversations that take place, right, that you start to form other connections and, and clarifications and that interaction can be a robust way of, of, again, making additional connections to flesh out your schema. Absolutely. What is the role of feedback in retrieval practice, whether it's with flashcards or other prompts? How does feedback help with the consolidation? It's important to recognize that feedback is not necessary for retrieval to have its effect. Okay, So there have been lots of studies that have looked at the fact that even without feedback, the act of retrieving actually uh, produces, you know, robust retention over time. But feedback is a great amplifier, okay? So if you compare no feedback versus feedback, you retain much, much more with the feedback because it allows for a metacognitive loop, right, to be able to understand, really to judge the efficacy of the retrieval strategy. And so there's some really nice work that's been done that shows people changing their retrieval strategy, changing the connections, with that feedback. And so, so it's a very educationally important principle, but in terms of the physiology of, of retrieval, feedback is not necessary. And that, 
And that's important just because people say, oh, it's just all about the feedback. Well, no, it's not, right? But when we think about from educators, from an educator standpoint, why withhold feedback? You know, we want people to retain as much as possible. We're not just trying to prove that you know retrieval works. And so, again, in my mind, there's no educationally justified reason to withhold feedback. The only time that I think feedback gets withheld is in test security situations where you know they won't don't want you know people to spread around the answers. Again, that's an administrative hoop, so to speak. But when we really want people to learn uh, from testing or from retrieval, then we absolutely should be giving feedback because that's going to you know, massively amplify what they're able to get back from that. I want to come back to our learners who are designing their own approaches or developing their own approaches to building their medical knowledge in preparing for tests. And we've talked a little bit about that. I want to sort of come back and give some general advice to those learners about some things that might work in terms of incorporating retrieval practice into the personal learning plan. I think one thing I have seen is that uh, many of my learners, especially residents, feel compelled to spend a lot of time reading long passages from textbooks or papers. I think you and others have shown that that's inferior to retrieving, uh, to using retrieval strategies. But some people feel some personal comfort in, in doing that. I think some people just like having a big, heavy book uh, psychologically. It's nice to know the extent knowledge that exists about something. But what advice would you give to learners based on what you know about, about this process, about the cognitive science, as they're building their own plan for learning over the course of a, of a residency? You know, I think the, the reading the long book and the comfort that comes from that, it goes back to those illusions of familiarity, right? We've, we've read it. We spent a long time there. We're familiar with it. Therefore, we know it. With that said, if somebody really wants to read the long book, there's some things that they can do for that, right? They can stop occasionally cover things up and quiz themselves about that. They can get to the end of a chapter and outline what did they learn from that and, and, and how, did they, how did they put that all together? How would they apply things uh, to that? Uh, so, so that's one way to modify if they're, they're reading the book. But I think that there's four or five different principles I would think about. One is, what is the type of knowledge you want to learn, right? So is it the facts? Is it the schema? Make sure that you're aligned with that. I think I would design tests that require generation, not just recognition. So things that we talked about, filling out a chart, filling out an outline, if it's anatomy, drawing it out, you know, as much as possible. And even if you're using a, a multiple choice product, covering up the answers, generating your answer, and then checking yourself based on the answers that are provided. So be generative about that. And then plan for repetition and spacing. So plan that you're not going to just do it once, but that you're going to do it multiple times and then have those spaced out. So maybe in the beginning, it's going to be, you know, really close together where every couple of days you'll quiz yourself on something, but then over time that needs to be spaced out to every couple of weeks or uh, within a month that you go back and you repeat that. And then finally, make sure that you're providing robust feedback so that you know, yes, I've got it or no, I don't. Uh, and that you can you map your progress over time. I hear from a, a lot of learners that they, they don't have time for this, but I would imagine that it doesn't always have to take a long time to engage in this process. And any thoughts about that or anything I, that can help me when, when I hear that people don't have a lot of time to yeah. study or retreat? So it goes back to your, uh, you know, your student in the, in the elevator, right? They, you, know, you can do some questions quite quickly. And in fact, most medical students, I think, have come to find that this is more efficient than most of the studying that they've 
they've done. So again, they can use, you can use a commercially available product that somebody's designed it for you and, and try to apply these principles like we talked about by covering up the answers and quizzing yourself. But again, as you're exposing yourself to other materials, create notes, create outlines for yourself that you then quiz yourself on. Have yourself go back to and try to recreate. It doesn't have to take a lot of time uh, to design that. Uh, it can just be something, again, that you sketch out and then come back to and re-sketch that out again. And you're going to to remember that for a lot longer than just having been exposed to it. I will tell you anecdotally, so many times my residents have been exposed to tables of various sorts that are usually fairly simple. You know, it would be a list of diseases and their clinical features, the genetics, the diagnostic imaging characteristics, et cetera. And they, they have a, a blank grid and they just start to fill it out. And the more that they do it, that tends to be a very powerful experience. And, and if you have the correct answers next to you for that feedback, then, then you completely loop. Absolutely. Also recognize that seeing patients is actually a form of retrieval practice. In fact, we showed that in some of our studies using standardized patients. But again, I think being purposeful about that and recognizing that and using those patient experiences, again, are really powerful ways to to harness this. I mean, retrieval is not just about the test and the, and the quiz, right? And, and I think that's something that's so important to remember is that seeing a patient is a form of retrieval practice. One last thing, and this is a little bit off topic, but I was uh, it, I was prompted to think about this by you mentioning seeing patients. As a clinical teacher, I do like to ask questions to probe for understanding from a learner in a group setting. Uh, and of course, there's a delicate balance. The, the word that we sometimes hear for this is pimping, uh, which, which seems to have an affect of an emotional psychological component. But it does seem like probing from understanding and allowing a learner to show what they know in a, in a psychologically safe environment may be effective uh, bedside teaching. Any, any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. So number one, I mean, I myself really prefer using questions. I think the key becomes that as educators and people in power, we have to just set the rules out to begin with and, and set our intentions out. And so one of the things that I will often say to students is I'll tell them, I'm going to ask you questions that you are likely not going to know the answers to. And that's okay. I just think it's much more interesting for us to have a conversation than for me to lecture at you. And when I tell them that, you can visibly see them relax. And I think that the problem with pimping is that usually the traditional form of that is I'm going to I'm going to probe until I humiliate you, right? I'm going to I'm going to try to to prove what you know and don't know. I think again if our intention is to make this more of a dialogue and more of a conversation, that's what creates that psychological safety, right? Where it's about, you know, we're going to, to explore together. And there's actually evidence that asking somebody a question they don't know the answer to actually promotes longer retention than if they're just exposed to the information up front. And so it's perfectly fine to ask the question that they don't know the answer. And again, I think it's, it's more effective because then they start activating those different schemas and trying to think about what could be the answer and then when we then talk about the answer, they can begin to connect it to things and it begins to make sense about things. But as you said, establishing that safety is the, is the paramount objective. You have to know why we're doing this and that it's not that we're out to get them, but that we're, we're out to have a conversation. Any additional comments, Doug? Any, anything, words of wisdom or, or anything that we didn't cover? 
No, I think just to encapsulate, what I would say is that when we begin to design educational programs, whether that's full-blown curricula, whether that's a session, whether that's an interaction in a clinic, we should have learning as our focus rather than teaching. We need to think in terms, what is the learning we want to have happen? And how how do we design a system and a circumstance that leads to that learning? And sometimes teaching is the right tool for that. But oftentimes it's not, or it's not an adequate tool. It's not a sufficient tool. And we therefore need to design systems that actually get us to the learning. And so start designing our systems from learning, not from teaching. And then I think that we can really change our educational practices. Well, this was absolutely wonderful. Uh, It was very edifying. You've made me once again question the entire purpose of my array of noon conferences, hundreds of them a year, most of which are focused on teaching and not learning, I would acknowledge. Although I don't think I'm unusual among residency program directors. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, And for our listeners who are preparing for high states exams, I I really think it is valuable for them to think about the ways in which they're learning and that that focus on that process of retrieving, of bringing up that information, of making those connections and forming those schema, of doing it in repeated fashion and using whatever prompt, but regardless of what that prompt is, whether it's flashcards or multiple choice vignettes or, or a book, uh, that they're, they're spending some time bringing that information up themselves, speaking it aloud or writing it, filling out grids or tables. Uh, those are things that are going to be the most effective ways they're going to be able to prepare. Thanks so much for coming. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, my pleasure. 